Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Kingsway, January 2016, first Sunday. So glad you're here. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Yeah. Love this series as we're jumping back into the end of Revelation. If you have not been here for the last few months, that's okay. You can go online and catch up. But uh, we're going to be doing the end of this a little bit different than the beginning of this. We're going to be looking at the end of Revelation, looking at what does the fact that Jesus is going to return one day look like when it comes? What happens to us when we die as best as we could tell from Scripture? And what does that mean for us really today? And here's my big question to start things off. How many of you have made New Year's resolutions? Let me see your hands, loud or proud. How many of you gave up on New Year's resolutions because you never kept them? That's me. I'm the guy who years ago, I'm like, you know what? I hate these things because all they do is make me feel guilty. So I just quit doing them. And this year's different. It's just different for a lot of reasons because I've been reading some books and I've been convicted about some things. And here's what I know. You've heard this before, so it's nothing new. But if you aim at nothing, how many times do you hit it? Every time. And so I don't want to waste my life. So the question is, rather than aim at nothing, God, what am I going to aim at in 2016? And here's a little something I know for sure. If you don't know what to aim at, or if you aim at the wrong thing, or if you misdiagnose the problem that you have, you will aim at the wrong things trying to fix it. I have a friend, this may be the worst example ever, but I have a friend. He was one of my mentors growing up. I won't, I won't use his name, but I saw him because I only go back home like I just get back off vacation. I only go back home once, maybe twice a year, maybe. And I went back and I visited with him and, and I said, man, you look great. You've lost all this weight. Like it's, it was around Christmas. I'm like, it's not even like New Year's yet. Like you begin your resolution early. What happened? He said, no, man, this is awesome. I've I just been losing weight. He goes, have I not told you this story? No, I haven't heard what happened. Well, this is great. Like I get on the scale and I'm five pounds down and another five pounds down, another five pounds down. Like it just kept going. And I was like, well, what did you do different? He said, well, that's the funny part. Like, I just stopped drinking soda. Maybe ate a salad or so a week. I'm like, that's it? Like, I could do that. And he said, yeah. And then I went to lunch with my sister, and she works in the medical field. And she said, that's not normal. Something's not right. You need to go see your doctor. And he went to his doctor and found out that he was a diabetic. What would have happened had my friend thought, this is fantastic, the best diet ever. I drink a little less soda, I insert a salad or two, and I, the pounds are just coming off. You know what would have happened? Sooner or later, he would have died. Now, praise God, he had a family member who understood something wasn't right. She had a pretty good guess. She pointed him in the right direction, and he went and got the help that he needed. And that's how I want this series, and especially this message to be in your life. Because here's what I know about you. You just got done with Christmas, with New Year's, and with Thanksgiving. And if you're at all like me, you're tired. I came back after traveling to Kentucky to see my wife's family, Ohio to see my family, and then Christmas Day itself with my family. And literally yesterday, we were home for one day before now, and literally yesterday morning I woke up and I looked at the house and I went, oh my gosh. There are boxes everywhere. We didn't have time between all the traveling. There are boxes everywhere. There are toys everywhere. There are presents everywhere. Not to count, the house was a little bit of a wreck before we went. It was chaotic. And I'm looking around going, what am I going to do? So I told the boys, try not to kill each other. Parents, come on, right? Those of you who only have one child, you don't know what this means. Because if your child cries, you freak out and you're there in the first second. You get to the second child, and if there's a little bit of crying or fussing or fighting going on, that's like 10 minutes later, you go check on them. By the time you get three, like if the cry goes into the second hour, you worry about it. But if it hasn't gotten there yet, like they're fine. Like guys, you know, just I don't want to see any blood, all right? Go. 
And I'm cleaning and I'm cleaning and I'm going and I'm going and it's crazy, it's crazy, it's busy, it's stressful, I'm all over the place. And then my son comes up to me, my second son, Levi, who I told you a couple weeks ago, he loves football. Daddy, 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 will you play football with me? Not now, son, but daddy, 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 I really want to play football. I'm tired of playing. Like, I know, I love you, we'll play later. But daddy, 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 I really want to play football, daddy. Look, son, look at the house. These are your toys. Why don't you clean a few? Every parent, right? Come on. It's not just the pastor, I know. And then my son says, Daddy, aren't people more important than things? <laughs> Don't, boy, you're, time out. <laughs> Don't you use one of my lessons against me. And here's the thing I know. New Year's resolutions come along. There's all kinds of things you'd love to go different about your life, right? There's all kinds of things that you wish were different or you can't, some you can't control and some you can't control. There's things that privately in your heart you're like, gosh, I hope nobody knows about these things, but I know I've got to stop doing this. There's other things in your life. You just are at that place and you're going, I'm just not where I thought I would be at this point. And guess what? I know, I know for some of you, there are situations and, and circumstances that are outside of some of your control, and some of them that are inside your control, but the reality for all of us is this one simple question. There's only one thing that's important. I learned that from City Slickers. There's only one thing, though. Some of you are like, you're old. I don't even know what that movie is. There's only one thing that matters. Only one thing that matters. Only one thing that matters. What is it? Let's take a look at our first story today. We're going to take a look at two different passages. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And here's how this story kicks off. There's a story that Jesus is talking to a group of people. Now, you need to know a little context. Jesus has told a number of stories about the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, he's telling all these different things. So each story we learn a little something different. And in this context, he's talking to a group of Jewish people. Primarily in this context, to be talking to both the people and the religious leaders who are with Jesus. And if you're new to church, you're new to Kingsway, you don't know, that's fine. In, in Jesus' context, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they didn't like Jesus very much because he was taking all of their power and their influence. People were leaving them to follow this Jesus guy. He was making claims about Messiahship and Son of Godness that they just couldn't figure out. They couldn't wrap their heads around. They weren't okay with it. And many times they actually tried to kill Jesus because of this. See, lest you think Jesus is just a good guy, a moral teacher, a philosopher, he wasn't. They knew that because multiple times they tried to throw him off a cliff, take stones to throw at him, have him arrested, but they never could seem to get it done because God wouldn't allow it to happen until it was time when he offered his life on the cross. So Jesus tells a story, Matthew chapter 22. We're going to pick up at verse 2. Verse 2. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. Now, stay there before we get to it. In Jesus' day, when there was a great wedding feast, it was the only game in town. It's hard for us in America to understand because in our context, you have plenty of opportunities. You can go to Monkey Joe's, one of my boys' favorites. They asked me a million times. You can go to Chuck E. Cheese. You can go up to the cool play place at Trader's Point. You can um, go for a walks in parks. You can go to baseball games and football games and basketball games. You can turn on an Xbox. There's all kinds of opportunities for entertainment on your iPad, iPhone, TV, your car, name it. Plus, at this time of the year, you have toys galore. But that wasn't true in much of the world today, and especially in the first century Palestine. 
I, my, my, the best way I can illustrate this is when I went to Care India, it was such a big deal when I would show up because I represent you. And so when I would show up, they'd always throw these big parties and they'd bring out these big flowerful lays and they'd throw these parades and banging music and drums and making music and it's a big deal. And when you would go to one of these villages, now don't think villages of tens of thousands of people. You go to a village, it's maybe hundreds, I didn't count, maybe thousands of people, but you show up at the village and because there's this parade and fireworks and music and hooping and hollering from a small group in the town who loved Jesus, Everybody comes out. Why? Because it's the only game in town. There aren't any other entertainment options. A wedding feast in Jesus' day was a big deal. This wasn't like the Bridezilla thing you see today. This isn't like a, you know, $10,000 for a three-hour event. This is, or $10,000, you're like, $10,000? This is a big deal. In fact, there was the wedding ceremony, and then there was the wedding feast. And sometimes feasts could go on for days. Yeah. Yeah. Preach it. This was a big deal. And not only that, but this is not just any old wedding. This is a wedding thrown by a king. Now, in the story, the king is going to represent God. The son is going to represent Jesus. But in the story, this is what's happening. This king, he's well known. This is his town. These are his people. He loves them. He serves them. He cares for them. And he's going to throw a big wedding in honor of his son. Now, imagine if tomorrow you go to the mailbox and you open the mail and there is an invitation to the prince of, uh, of England's wedding. Now, some of you men be like, saw it on TV, who cares? But most of you would be like, how did I get this invitation? <laughs> Sounds awesome. You mean they're paying for it? You mean I get to go? I get to be on TV? I get to be a part of this massive, cool, once-in-a-lifetime kind of event? That's the story that Jesus is telling. This is a very big deal. Now, because they didn't have iPhones and iPads and TVs and radios and those kinds of ways to get the word out, the way they would get the word out is they would send out the servants. And the servants would originally go out with some sort of an invitation. And here's your invitation. This is going to be a big deal. You're a big deal because we're inviting you to this big deal. You need to come to our big deal. And everybody would have been like, wow, this is great. And then when the day came, because everybody knew the day at that point, when it came time for the day, they would send out the servants. So there'd be a lot of preparation, making of food and preparing of the room, just like today, all these things. And because they had to come together at a specific moment, but you never knew exactly when all those things were going to happen, they would send out the servants roughly an hour or so beforehand, and the servants would go door to door to the people who were invited. Hey, come to the party. Hey, come to the party. Hey, come to the party. It's time. It's time. It's time. And they would get dressed and ready and show up at the party, and everybody would celebrate, and there'd be a big feast, and it would go on for days. That's the story Jesus is telling. But look at what happens in verse 3. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. Now, biblically, Jesus is talking very specifically to the Jews, but to us today, there's a bigger context, there's a bigger story going on here. Throughout the New Testament, God uses the analogy of a wedding between the bride and a groom as the picture of Jesus and the church. And here's what that means. Jesus is called the groom. Now, don't be offended by that. If you're a guy in the room like me, that doesn't mean you're a woman. This isn't about gender. This is about analogies. In God's biblical metaphors, uh, a husband is supposed to be loving and caring and providing and gentle and strong and tender all at the same time because that's who Jesus is. He's all these things. He can speak truth in love. 
He can give grace and be the one who judges at the same time. He can be full of mercy and yet look at somebody and tell them the harshest reality, the hardest reality that they need to face. He can do all these things. Why? Because he is a perfect husband, unlike the one you married or the one my wife married. He is a good, good husband. And his bride is his prized possession. Above all else, he cares for, protects, provides, loves, watches out for. This is a big deal to him. So God is throwing a party in honor of Jesus' wedding with the church. But when the wedding invitation time came, the simple reality is people were just too busy to show up. And take a look. I want you to get this point before we move on to verse 4. Our busyness prevents us from coming to the party that God is throwing for us. The simple reality is that you, like me, are too tempted and distracted by this world to often make it to the party. This will become clear in the text as we go. So let's keep moving. For time's sake, we'll speed up. Verse 4. <coughs> Excuse me. So he, this king, he sent other servants to tell them. Notice he's giving them a second chance. He's full of mercy. Look, I don't want you to miss the party. Come to the party. Verse 4. He sent other servants to tell them. The feast has been prepared. The bulls and fattened cattle have been killed, and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. Now, this time the servants go out. They don't just say, come to the banquet. It's time. They go with more detail. Notice the detail they're giving. Everything has been prepared. This is in honor of my son. Show up this, this phrase right here, the bulls and the fattened cattle. That is a key phrase, phrase for the people in first century Palestine. Because what that says is this king has spared no expense. This is going to be the best eating possible. You cannot get to the wedding day without having planned on it. You can't get a fattened bull. You can't get a fattened cattle unless you've been fattening it for quite some time. They have planned a massive feast. So what we see here is there is going to be a great reward for showing up at this party. Verse 5. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way. One to his farm and another to his business. Now I love the way this is worded. In first century Palestine, highly agricultural culture, that's a funny phrase, agricultural culture. So your farm was your home. So this fits both men and women. See, in that day, the men would have had jobs. The women rarely, rarely would have gotten a job. In fact, Lydia in the book of Acts, we talked about her a month or so ago, Lydia would have been a rarity. Uh, she sold colors of purple and linen and things like that. But in that day, most of the women didn't have jobs. But if you had a farm, many of the women had a job. I'm not suggesting that women should stay at home. What I am saying is this hits both. What's going on in this text is Jesus saying the king is throwing a massive party, but people are just simply too busy with the concerns of life. They're too busy taking care of their families, their houses, their stuff. They're too busy traveling, getting business going, plowing the ground to just pause for a minute and come to a party that's being thrown. This is a big deal. Does it feel like your life over the last month at all? Does it feel like your life? Let me just suggest you, let's say you're visiting here today and um, you don't really have a relationship with God. In fact, you're not even sure why you need or want one. You don't agree with the church. You disagree with a lot of what's put out there. But for some reason, something keeps drawing you here. So you're here and you're just trying to figure this out. I don't know how to feel. I don't know what to think, but I'm here. Let's just say that's you. 
Here's one guess I'm just going to make about your life. You're probably too busy. You're overwhelmed. you got too many options, too many opportunities, too many dreams that are unfulfilled, things that you want to accomplish, and it just doesn't seem to be happening. And guess what? Jesus knew this was going to be the case because it's been the case ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because we are so tempted, so tried, so um, troubled by what's going on around us. We think we're missing out at every turn. We think we're, we're, we're left out. We think we're missing something. So we're constantly striving and climbing and, and going and carrying on and traveling and doing that we don't know how to just stop and put first things first. You remember the way Jesus said this, right? Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I will take care of everything else. I'll take care of the clothes and the food and the money and everything else. All you have to do is put first my kingdom and my righteousness. And what we know is this has been going on for a long time, but there's going to come a day where the king is going to say, that's it. I've had enough. Look at verse uh, 6. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. Verse 7 won't make sense unless I talk about this. What happened at Jesus' day is they literally first tried to kill him, but they've killed almost all the prophets before him. Whether it's arresting him or throwing him in prison, you've got guys like Jeremiah, you've got guys like Isaiah, you've got guys like Ezekiel. My goodness, I started reading Ezekiel last year. I was just dumbfounded what God asked Ezekiel to do. It's just amazing in the persecution he received. And this is what happens to the people of God who give the message of God over and over and over again. And I just want to say, if you're visiting here today and this is you, let me help you find another church. If you plan to kill a pastor... But let's just say you're visiting today and your, your temptation is to judge everything you see and everything you hear. Let me just caution you to just slow down for a minute. Take it all in. Take it all in. And just listen. The thing I want you to get out of this is that if you're not careful, friends, if you're not careful, your love of things that can't fulfill or satisfy will keep you from coming to the party of God. If you're not careful, your love of things that can't Fulfill or satisfy will keep you from coming to the party. Your love of job, your love of stuff, your love of money, your love of pleasure. The list could go on, but if you're not careful, this is going to happen. And it doesn't just happen to unbelievers, as we're about to see. Look at verse 7. So the king says, that's it, I've had enough. And he was furious. And he sent out his army. Notice he's not sending out servants and slaves anymore. He's sending out his army now to destroy the murderers and burn their town. By the way, in fulfillment of this prophecy, that's exactly what happened in 70 AD when God sent the Romans to destroy Jerusalem, ransacked Jerusalem, tore the temple down, and now an Islamic mosque sits on the Temple Mount. You may have seen those Jewish people praying at the temple wall, at the wailing walls, because God in 70 AD judged Israel for doing this. This has totally been fulfilled in real history. Now, verse 8, and he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. And the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. So now, go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. This is exactly what happened in the book of Acts. So the gospel comes to Jerusalem. 
God takes it there first. And we see that in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3. And 3,000 people are baptized that day. Tons and tons of people respond to the call of Christ to come to him and give their lives to him. And then Israel stops responding. And so God spreads the gospel out to the nations all around, good and bad. The Romans, as we've been talking about in Revelation, they are evil. They are obsessed with evil. They do all kinds of immoral things. And God said, I want you at my party. I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care how hard it's been. I want you at my party. Come to my party. And so us, the servants of God, are called to go out to the ends of the earth and invite people to this party. But look what happens. This is this is a twist in the story here. Verse 10. So the servants brought everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the time came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Imagine you show up on your wedding day. Now let's just say you're the, it doesn't matter which way it goes, but let's just say you're the groom. You show up and you got your tux on and you're ready to go and you're looking good. And your wife comes walking in off the street. She's chewing her gum. Her hair is done. She's got her jeans on. And, oh, hey, yeah, I forgot this was today. It won. And she walks up to the altar, and you're like, babe, come on. Like, this is a big deal here. What is going on? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, I know. I do, I do, I do, I know, I do. Yes, yes. Can we move on now? In a way, that's the picture that Jesus is trying to paint. Now, it's different because it's a guest of the party. In this picture, all these people have gone home. They've been invited to the king's banquet feast. So they ran home. They put on their best, and they came into the banquet. They were ready to go. They got themselves ready to be in the banquet. But the king shows up to see all of his new guests and to honor them and greet them and give them this amazing meal and party and celebration in honor of his son. But he finds a guy sitting there, and he's like, hey, what are you doing here? You look like you walked in off the street. I invited you to this amazing moment, and your response was not to get ready for it? Your response to this amazing moment was to simply just show up? Take a look at what happens next. Verse 12. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. And the king said to his aides, bind his hands and his feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Here's what I know to be absolutely sure. Our lack of preparation keeps us from staying at the party. There's been a debate raging among Christians for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. And here's the debate. Can a person lose their salvation? I don't know. If the greatest minds of Christianity haven't solved this after hundreds of years, here's what I do know with absolute certainty. You cannot lose your salvation like you lose car keys. And I lose mine all the time. And most of the time, I'm convinced it's my kid's fault. And my wife tells me to suck it up. It's my fault. You don't just walk in the door and go, oops, where'd my salvation go? Oh, I found it. Put it back in my pocket. And then come back the next day. Oops, where'd my salvation go? Oops, oh, there it is. Here it is. Put it in my pocket. That's not how salvation works. You aren't in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. That's not how it works. I know that. You aren't out every time you sin. And you aren't in every time you repent. That's not how it works. But I do know this. There are really, really, really hard passages like this. Now, one side of this debate would say this person was never saved in the first place. 
Maybe, it's just not what the text seems to imply. The text seems to imply that on the last day, they'll be sitting at the party, and then the king will say, you weren't ready for this party. In the very least, here's what I know. Here's what I know. This text is intended to make those of us who have come to the party between the groom and his bride, the church, those of us who are here, who call ourselves Christians, texts like this are to get in our face and challenge us. They're to make you feel uncomfortable about wherever it is you're seated right now. They're to make you wrestle, as we are later told in the text, in the New Testament. We are told to uh, work, our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because we stand before a holy God who is all-powerful. I do not want you living your lives in fear of, ah, am I, am I one who's ready or am I not? There's a way for you to know if you're ready. Did you know that? There's a way for you to be absolutely sure that you are going to be at the party. Now, let me tell you how to make that happen. Revelation chapter 19. Go ahead and flip there with me. Revelation 19. Verse 1. Now, you got to realize, we're jumping to a whole new book. It's written in apocalyptic literature. There's lots of things I can't explain to you. They aren't our focus for today, but I will read the text and do my best. Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting. Now, notice, there's a vast crowd in heaven. Who is the crowd? Well, I can't say what I'm about to say with absolute certainty, but I'm pretty sure the text, if you were to read 17, 18, 19, and 20, lends us to this conclusion. The vast crowd in heaven is made up of both angels and saints. And when it says saints, it means those who are saved, who have died, and who have gone before us. Those who loved Jesus here on earth and have gone before us are in heaven, vast crowd gathering together, and they're praising him. They're singing songs of salvation to him. If you were to go all the way back, I believe it's in chapter 7, I believe. If you were to go all the way back to Revelation chapter 7, we see these same saints in heaven, and they're crying out for God's justice. They're begging him, when are you going to act? Rome is abusing us. They're leading us into sin. They're persecuting us. They're putting us in prison. Rome is even killing us. When, God, are you going to do something? And do you remember God's response? His response earlier in Revelation, I think it was chapter 7, was this. It might be chapter 6. It was this, not yet. Not until the full number, the full number of those who are going to die in the faith have died. That's not the encouraging word we wanted to hear, Lord. But now in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, it's now. Wherever that is in the future, whether that's later today or tomorrow or next week or next year, I don't know. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but we know this. When it comes, here we will see believers in heaven shouting and praising God. And what are they saying in their song of praise? Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And all of these are important statements. Praise the Lord for three things. Why? Because we praise God, we praise him in threes. Salvation. What does this word mean? If you're visiting today, you may not know this. This word simply means saved. God rescued us from this world that's distracting us, the busyness of our jobs, the concerns about our social lives, all of those things that were distracting us from God himself, the most important thing in our lives. He came and he rescued us from all those things. He rescued us from Satan who wants to lead us into sin and death. He rescued us from heartache and trouble, 
no longer. In fact, as we get to the end of Revelation, I want you to come back and for nothing else, hear the rest of Revelation. As we get to the rest of it, we find out that he has given us a tree that's going to heal all of our hurts and pains and wounds. He's going to remove our addictions and our sins forever. And we will walk with him. And it'll be beautiful. And this is why salvation and glory and power belong to him and to him alone. In other words, the time has come for God to bring justice to the injustice. So here's what I need you to know. First of all, what do I need to do to make sure that I end up at the party? Number one, you need to be saved. Let's talk about salvation for just a moment. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, preaches a really long sermon. Amen. I love that about Peter. Peter preaches a really long sermon. And the people are cut to the heart. And these are mostly Jewish people. And they say, what do we need to do to be saved? And he makes the statement that's profound and clear and it's black and white. There's no getting around it. He says, you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's talking to a group of people who already believe. He's not just telling them, go get wet and you'll be saved. That's not what he's saying. They believe. They have faith in Jesus Christ. He just preached a long sermon about Jesus. And at the end of the long sermon, in fact, the Acts chapter 2 tells us they didn't even record everything Peter talked about because it was a long sermon. But he walks through all the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. Who is this Jesus? And by the way, you killed him. They believe. They agree. They are with it. And he says, now what you need to do is repent. What repent means is turn away. There are things in your lives that are distracting you from God, the busyness of life. You have not put God number one. You have put something else or many something else or someone else or many someone else is ahead of him. And Peter said you need to turn to God. And then you need to get baptized. You need to unite with Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. So what that means is when you go into the waters of baptism, you come out of the waters of baptism, a beautiful thing happens. God looks at you and he says, forgive him. Not just for everything up to this moment. It's not like you need to come back and get baptized again and, oh, I sinned again. Oh, I need to get to do it again. Let me just tell you, if that were the case, I'm pretty sure over the last month alone, I'd be taking a lot of baths. I'm not perfect. And what it means is God is marking you, not by what you've done and who you've been and where you were. He's marking you with something new. I love baptism. It's one of my favorite moments here at Kingsway. We had, I don't even know the exact number, I think 100, roughly 150 people last year get baptized. In fact, at the end of this month, we're going to hold a baptism celebration Sunday at the conclusion of this series, and it's going to be one big party. I want you to consider coming. You could do it today. You don't have to wait a month. I'd encourage you not to wait a month. But it's going to be one big party that I want you to start praying about. That's the first thing you need to do. Second thing you need to do, take a look. Revelation chapter 19, verse 2. His judgments are true and just. What that means is this. When Jesus returns, he, he came the first time in mercy. The second time he comes in judgment, and his judgment will be true and just. Here's the question I get all the time. Matt, my parent, my child, my cousin, whoever it is, somebody in my life has died can I know that they're going to heaven? Here's what I could tell you. Here's the confidence that I could give you. His judgments are true and just. You are leaving your loved ones in the hands of an almighty God who will not make the wrong decision. And his decision will probably be far more merciful than yours. 
He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with immorality. This comes out of chapter 17 and 18. We read about Babylon. It's mostly about Rome, but it also fits any generation where there is temptation to sin against God, to leave God, to not make him number one. And God says, I will punish those who lead others into sin. This is why Jesus tells a story, and I believe it's in Luke, and he says, woe to you who lead others into sin. And then he says, he has avenged the murder of his servants. Remember all the way back into Matthew 22? Remember that where God is going to punish those who killed the prophets and the apostles and those who served God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and were persecuted? God is going to have a day. See, justice has to come somewhere. And it's either going to come on the cross of Christ, Jesus being punished for your sin, or it's going to come on the last day when Jesus punishes you for your sin. Look at verse 3. And again, their voices rang out, praise the Lord, the smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. And then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne and they cried out, amen, praise the Lord. This is something that's very hard for us to understand. I got an email early this morning from a parent whose child is struggling with faith and says, why, why should I believe in the God of the Bible? Just because I was raised in a Christian home and I was told about Jesus, it seems unfair that Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and people elsewhere would be sent to hell because they weren't born in the right family or in the right situation. And to what I would say is simply this, I agree with you wholeheartedly that it is sad that they don't have the gospel, which is why the church of Jesus Christ must never forget that there is a call for the servants of God to go out to the ends of the earth and invite people to the party. Jesus is throwing a massive party. Sorry, God is throwing a massive party in honor of Jesus, in honor of you, the bride, the church. The goal for all of us is to reach out. But if you're sitting at the party, how do you know if you're dressed appropriately? Man, that's the real question, isn't it? For most of us in the room who believe in Jesus, that's the thing we really need answered. And here's my response. I want you to entrust every detail of your life to God and Christ. Let God bring justice to your injustice, life to your death, and hope into your life. These saints that are singing the song, these saints were the same ones who were begging God to bring justice, and God's response was not yet. I meet so many people all the time at Kingsway who are going through a divorce or a terrible situation and they want revenge. And God says this, revenge is mine to repay. So what do you do? You forgive when it makes no sense to forgive. You be merciful when it makes no sense to be merciful. You be generous to a people who do not deserve it. You give love when others are giving hate. You give kindness when others are spewing venom. When others are gossiping about you, you pray for them. When others are slandering you, you get on your knees. When this world does what this world does, and it beats you down, and it chews you up, and it spits you out, you turn to the only one who understands exactly what that feels like. He could do something about it, and his name is Jesus. See, here's what happens. When you begin to entrust God to handle your injustices, when you begin to trust God to bring the healing and the hope, when you begin to release your tight hold and all these things that are, you think you have got to figure out, what you're going to find is you start to put the first thing first and all the other things fall into place. 
See, as you start 2016, there may be a whole slew of things that you think you want to do or want to do or whatever it is, but I got to tell you, if you don't make the first thing the right thing, if you don't diagnose the problem the right way, then you will, you will find yourself coming up with all kinds of wrong solutions. And you'll end up further into a pit of bitterness and despair and anger and frustration and loneliness and anxiety and depression. And not only that, you'll find yourself not dressed well for the wedding. When Jesus talks about being prepared for the wedding, it doesn't just simply mean one thing. It means many things. It means believers seeking out who Jesus is and what Jesus looks like and then aligning their heart and their lives to his. And that's not an easy task. But it's one that God has equipped you for through the Holy Spirit. See, there's two parts to Matthew 22, as there is also Revelation 19. But in Matthew 22, the first part is a call to salvation. It's a call to those to come to the party and be invited to the party. But it's also a call to sit at the party and be prepared for the party. Jesus uses this preparation language over and over and over again. In fact, later, just a couple chapters later, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is talking about the same kind of thing. And he's talking about lamps having oil and other analogies where he's saying, look, morally be ready, financially be ready, socially be ready. Use your money, your resources, your gifts to bless other people and invite them to the party and be ready. And in all of these things, you will have prepared your heart. Here's what Jesus isn't saying. Be perfect and never make a mistake. Or you can't come to the party. You lost your salvation. You blew it. Just like you lost your car keys. Oh, you found it again. Nope, you lost it again. Oh, you found it again. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is if you truly love me, then act like it. Let your life, your deeds, your heart reflect that you love me. Jesus says it this way in another text. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. Back to Revelation chapter 19, verse 5. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Do you hear that? And from the throne came. So now there's a voice coming out from the throne. Huh. Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Fascinating. I wonder if this isn't the call of the Holy Spirit going out to all the ends of the earth, stirring in hearts, maybe even like yours today, saying, praise God, all who fear him, <clears throat> all who realize that a day of reckoning is coming, all who realize that <clears throat> on the last day we will have to stand before him, but we don't have to stand before him in fear. We will stand before him because we have already been afraid of what he could do. We put our hope in Jesus. We already received our salvation. We know that our reward from him is real and it is present. And now we stand ready to receive from the least to the greatest. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how prominent you are. It doesn't matter how noble, how much nobility you have. What matters is that you're at the party, ready to be be there. Oh, I love this. Verse 6. Then I heard again what sounded like loud shout. This is the best part of the whole text. Then I heard what sounded like a loud shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. I'll just stop there. I'll let that be today. That'd be awesome. And his bride 
has prepared herself. Verse 8. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good what? Deeds of God's holy people. Friends, you are not saved by what you do, but do not tell me what you do doesn't matter. On the last day, the saints in heaven will be dressed in white, and that white will be the clothing of what they did with Jesus on this earth. Let me ask you a question. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Are you frustrated at life and life situations and how things are going, and you want things to change? Maybe you don't know what to change. So you're trying to schedule 30 minutes of exercise every day, and that's not a bad thing. I highly recommend it. But that's not going to bring the kind of change you're looking for. And so you think to yourself, I know, I know, I know. I'll, I'll cancel my internet so that I don't keep going on the internet. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'll, I'll, I'll set a timer on my watch so I don't eat seven times a day. I only eat four times a day. I know, I know, I know, I know. I, I, I'll let my spouse handle the finances so I don't just keep spending money. I know, I know, I know, I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. I'll drive a different way home from work so that I don't stop by the bar. I know what I'll do. I'll get rid of all the alcohol in the house so that I don't just come home and have a drink. You know, the, the problem with all those things is their exterior hopes at changing something interior. The problem for all of us is we have a heart issue, and it cannot be resolved until you first, first and foremost, put your Savior as number one. And when your Savior is number one, then we can start to talk about how to deal with the heart issues. That's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. So I'm leaving you with a homework assignment today. I want you to create resolutions for 2016. And let me just be honest, you probably don't know how yet because you're like, I just thought I had them. I was going to exercise 30 minutes and drive a different way home. That's what I was going to do. You just messed me up. That's okay. I want you to take 30 minutes, 30 minutes. You can take longer, that's fine. Just give yourself 30 minutes this week. And I want you to just write down, how do you plan to be noble in 2016? And here's what I mean by that. Isaiah 32, verse 8, says this. But the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. But the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. See, it's not enough to have plans. You have to have follow-through. But if you don't have the right plans, you'll have the wrong follow-through. And what I want you to do is just to sit down. I just want you to ask this question. How am I going to be noble in 2016? And you need to look at, like, your heart and your family and your life. What is it I need to stop doing? What is it I need to start doing? You need to start asking these questions and just write down. And some of you are like me. You're going to have a 1,000 things. And then you're going to get overwhelmed. And you're going to have to go see a counselor and then come back and go, my pastor is stressing me out. I'll help you fix that. I just want you to take the first step. Because most of you said, no, I don't do resolutions. I want you to take the first step. Come next week, and I'll tell you what, I'll share my list. I'll be really open and honest about my list, at least most of it, in 2016. But we've got to put the first thing first. Here's my challenge to you today. Some of you haven't been putting God first in your life. You've let family and work and jobs and schools and hobbies and toys and parties and celebrations, you've let them become first. And you've started to drift away from God because of it. The good news is Jesus hasn't returned yet. It's not too late. It's not too late to get ready. 
Some of you have not let little things like busyness get in the way. You've let big things like major immorality get in the way. You've got something that you're hiding and nobody knows about. I'm telling you, there is going to come a day of reckoning. Jesus will show up one day unannounced. I want you to be ready. Rather than beat yourself up and feel guilty about it and do nothing, I want you to feel convicted and reach out for help. Would you just simply reach out for help this week? Would you go to your life group leader? Would you send one of the ministers on staff an email and say, I need help. Help me. I don't want to go go like this anymore. Let us help connect you to the right resources. Maybe it's just simply for you that um, you need to put Jesus first in your life again. I want you to sit down and start to figure that out. Lastly, lastly, maybe you're in this room, you've never given your life to Jesus. You could do it today. You don't have to wait till the end of the month. I'd rather you don't. If today you'd like to make the day you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's going to come a day of reckoning. Would you be ready by today, starting with that first decision, to walk away from who you used to be and walk into life with him? Unite with him in baptism, even today. I don't care if you didn't come prepared. We got everything you need. We even have hair dryers. You could come down while I, while, while I pray. Oh, I'll tell you what. I'm gonna, Brad, I'm messing you up. While I pray and while we sing this next song, I think we're going into communion next. I tell you what, if you just come down here, I will literally go stand under that curtain, under that screen right there, and I will talk to you. You just come down there and just come talk to me and say, I need help. And we'll help get you connected to resources. Let's pray. Father God, oh God, we love you. Lord, Jesus is going to come back. We don't know the day or the hour. It could be before I even say amen. It could be right now. Oh, God, I pray for those in this room who just thought, it's a new year, I'm going to start off different. And they didn't know they were going to come here today and be smacked with a two-by-four. God, I pray that your spirit would move and convict and challenge. God, would you stir? What happens to all of us, God, is we're so afraid. We're so afraid to jump. We're so afraid to let go. We're so afraid to follow you because we're so afraid of the implications. But, God, the fear of this world is what keeps us from coming to the party. So, God, would you relieve and remove the fear that's being felt in this room right now? And God, would you just help to stir in hearts as we come before you. Help us to prioritize our lives around you. In Jesus' name, amen.